but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another installment here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast here on the 29th of September. We're going to dive into all that we have to talk about here in Minnesota sports. And on Wednesdays here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast, we're doing something new. We're calling it a What About Wednesdays. And what is What About Wednesdays? Well, we look and say, what about the other teams that uh, our Minnesota sports teams are competing against? So we'll be looking at division rivals, seeing where they're at, just kind of ranking them and seeing uh, what the Minnesota sports teams need to be worried about. All right, let's start off here. In college football, talking about the Golden Gophers here, and we're not going to look at the whole Big Ten because it doesn't really matter because we all know that Ohio State is going to the Big Ten championship game. It is just a given at this point, barring some kind of epic collapse. So the Gophers, looking at the Big Ten West, you know, it still is wide open, kind of. At this point in the season, it's still wide open. Now, looking at the Big Ten standings here, is that it is it's wide open. I mean, it really is. Because there's essentially, outside of the Gophers, who we're going to just say for the sake of argument, because it's a Minnesota-themed podcast, that the loss over Bowling Green doesn't completely devastate them, and they figure out a way to, to rebound and, and figure things out, and they're in the thick of the conversation. Well, they really have three big opponents in terms of the Big Ten West. Uh, and that comes in the form of Purdue, Wisconsin, and Iowa. So Purdue is 3-1 and one to start the year, although their schedule hasn't been too great. Um, they have, Their one loss was to Notre Dame, uh, I believe. And they just haven't, I mean, they beat up on the smaller teams. So they're 3-1. and one. The Gophers have to go on the road to West Lafayette. Jeff Brom has gotten Purdue to this kind of competent level like they're respectable they win you know about six to seven games a year but they haven't really wowed anybody they haven't really gotten anything back on track um so i would still say purdue is still probably the least to worry about on this list but it all kind of just depends on how game day goes on saturday if the gophers are able to go in put that bowling green loss behind them take care of business then purdue not worried about them then uh, the Gophers have to worry about the other two here. Uh, with Purdue, I think when you look at uh, at their team here so far, I nothing about them scares me. And, I mean, I haven't watched a ton of Purdue tape on the year. Um, if you look at their points for points against, they've given up only 57 points and scored 105. Now, granted, they've been playing, you know, some. it's hard to judge really your points for against because you're playing the non-conference teams. But... Um, it's still, they still have some offensive stuff that they like to do. Uh, I still think the Gophers have a good shot of going in and winning. The only thing is if that loss completely destroys them, I still think they can win that. Looking at Wisconsin here, Wisconsin is a good team. They have good de- They consistently are. They consistently have good offensive linemen. They consistently have a good defense. 
The only thing is just they don't have a quarterback. They usually have good running backs. The wide receivers are kind of iffy, but that falls on the quarterback. And Wisconsin got trounced by Notre Dame this weekend because their quarterback threw three straight interceptions. Two of them pick sixes, by the way. Uh, and when you do that, you can't win. Your quarterback has actively nuked your team for years. Wisconsin has done that for years. They have good teams. And honestly, if they find a quarterback, they would be talented enough to beat Ohio State. That's how frustrating Wisconsin is at quarterback. I still think Wisconsin is probably better than the Gophers just because the Gophers haven't proved that they can, you know, that they're a 50-50 shot against Wisconsin. They're always like a 75-25 matchup just because of only one win against the Badgers in the last, what, 20 years? So we're going to give that to uh, Wisconsin there. They're number two on the list in terms of uh, kind of ranking them one through three, who these three teams are you need to be worried about. Um, but Iowa is the favorite. They're number five, uh, five in the country. They have wins against Iowa State, who I think is overrated because they lost to Iowa, and they also just lost to Baylor over the weekend. But I still think that Iowa's a good team as much as it hates, pains me, just wrecks me to say it. The Gophers, that's probably the biggest competition of the year is Iowa. That's probably the biggest game of the year is win uh, outside of the Ohio State one. But the biggest game remaining on the schedule is when they go to Iowa on November 13th. But the Gophers, when you look at their schedule, they had that loss. It's still pretty winnable. This Big Ten West, if they can rebound from the Bowling Green loss. Nebraska, I'm not worried about them. They had some good fight against Michigan State, but... To win the Big Ten West, they're already 0-2 in the conference. So they have – Maryland is 4-0. They could be a tough out, but you play them at home, so that's an advantage. And then you have Illinois you're going to beat. Northwestern you should beat. Indiana you should beat, but they'll be tough. So realistically, you have a path here if you can just take care of business. And then, of course, because you play Wisconsin and Iowa late, you have a chance to be in conversation for the Big Ten West by the time you play those two teams. So it's still not over yet, but there is still, they still need more. Uh, but they at least can put themselves in a good position. Losing a game like that is bad for publicity. It's bad for the just the team aura. But at the same time, it hasn't affected the Big Ten West standings at all. So they still have a chance to go in and win that if they can put that all behind them. All right, let's dive into the Vikings here uh, today. And looking at our what if Wednesday or uh, what about Wednesday here, uh, looking at uh, the NFC North here, the Packers are division favorites again. As long as Rodgers can still play defense, he's they're going to be good. They're going to be good. And if that defense can just be competent, they're going to be a title contender. You hate to say it, but the track record has been proven over the last five to ten to fifteen years. They just they just stay in the conversation as long as Rodgers plays well and the defense can hold their own. They don't have to be great, but they just need to be able to stop a team every once in a while. And they're doing that so far this year. A big win in San Francisco for them is going to propel them early in the season. Bears, I thought they'd have more life to them, but Fields is a mess. They have a quarterback situation is a mess again. That was embarrassing. I didn't watch any of the game, but just seeing more and more of what happened. One net passing yard late in the game for the Bears, just terrible. Awful. And that falls on the head coach. Justin Fields wasn't ready. You should have started Nick Foles just because he wasn't ready to go. You're gonna, The potential of ruining his confidence or at least ruining your confidence in him, uh, terrible. 
And Matt Nagy just needs to be fired, just on the way that they game plan. He game planned terribly for Fields' first career start. Nagy's going to get fired this year. I think that that's my prediction. I don't think he can save himself. I think he gets fired and they want to bring in a new coach to work with Fields, but we'll see what happens. The defense is still good, and they're going to keep wasting this defense. This is year, what, three or four of them wasting uh, this defense that the Bears have? Terrible. Just Chicago all around. I'm not worried about them. I'm not worried about the Bears. And one last thing on them. Everybody made fun of Andy Dalton. And yeah, he's not that good. But he's good enough to be, he knows what he's doing when he's starting. Does that mean he can make all the throws? Does that mean that he's unstoppable? No, not by any stretch. But he at least had a competent head on his shoulders with a good defense. And that could have at least got you to eight wins. And in a seven-team playoff format, last year was good enough. Dalton was definitely better than Trubisky, so probably better than Foles when Foles isn't on God mode. So they probably could have been right back into that trying to squeak into the playoffs, but the fans want the young guy, and when you go to the young guy when he's not ready, things like that happen. All right, the Lions, scrappy. They have the Campbell effect um, for how well they've been playing, but you know when you look at the matchup they had against Baltimore, playing them well. Basically, they would have beat them if it wasn't for Justin Tucker going God mode and making a 66-yard field goal. The Lions were in the game early in the second half against the Packers before everything fell apart. They almost beat the 49ers after having a big comeback. They're scrappy. They have that Dan Campbell effect. They they're ripping off kneecaps and probably owning a probably all trying to buy lions like their own pet lions. I don't know. They're they're a little intense over there in Detroit. You can see it rubbing off on some of the players with how well that they've at least been uh, playing their competition. Now it hasn't translated into wins. They're zero and three, and that's the point. No excuses here. The Vikings need to go two and zero against Detroit. This won't be the Patricia cakewalk that it was, but you're going to have to beat them. You're going to have to come out and just at least for the first half just show you're the better team and then just beat them in a submission from there. You're not going to be able to just walk in like some – I remember I saw when they played the Lions a couple years ago. They had Driscoll in at quarterback, so it was already a loss, but that team just did not try. They were ready. The Vikings walked onto the field. All right, just chalk up a W. They were going to win that game. So with the with the Vikings and the Lions this year, they need to go 2-0 against them. The Bears, because the Soldier Field weirdness, they split, I think. The Packers, I think they split with them just because I think the Vikings can, if they can put it all together, if they can kind of figure out things on defense. Zimmer usually has a good game plan for Rodgers. So I think the Vikings could split, which means you go 4-2 and two in your division. That's pretty dang good. All right, looking at the Vikings here, we need to talk about how can the Vikings slow down Baker Mayfield and this offense. So what does the defense need to do? Keep in mind now, the Minnesota Vikings defense, they need to stop the run. That's the biggest thing. They haven't been able to generate a lot of sacks outside of Daniel Hunter, but they've at least been able to get a little bit of pressure. Not a lot. You want more. But the thing I'm worried about, and this is the thing that Zimmer, this is the thing that Zimmer wanted to fix, stopping the run. And so far, they have, they've been better than last season, but anything would have been better than last season. So they're 20th in the NFL right now in terms of rushing yards allowed per game. And how much is that? Well, that is 
They average 119 rushing yards a game. And that's that's not good. Chris Carson was tearing up that team last week, and if the Seahawks were in a closer game, they could probably run more instead of having to pass. Uh, when you look at Joe Mixon, the way he was running up and down on the Vikings in week one, it just wasn't good. And Baker Mayfield is not a he's not a scrambler, but he knows how to get mobile. He's young enough to still be mobile. But they have the Kareem Hunt, they have the uh, Nick Chubb backfield there with those two. The two-headed monster, probably the most balanced running attack, the most balanced team in terms of offense and defense. But with the running backs, you have to you have to slow them down at all. Now there are going to be weapons in the passing game, but you can at least hope that Kendricks can try and cover that up a little bit. And if you somehow get Anthony Barr back, we'll talk about him in a second. That helps you out in terms of covering the running backs. But looking at the Vikings, they need to stop the run. They need to, because if you're Cleveland, if you're Kevin Stefanski, you want to establish the run right away. You want to control the clock. You want to keep the defense on the field as much as possible because they have not been great so far this season. We talked about fixing them. Uh, if they'll get fixed in yesterday's podcast, go listen to that on Apple and Spotify if you can after you listen to this one. But he hasn't, uh, Stefanski rather, hasn't been able to play Zimmer yet. So it's going to be a big thing. Zimmer, now we're going to find find out how much the run-heavy thing was Zimmer, Stefanski, kind of a blend of both, I think, really. But Stefanski is going to want to come in. He's going to want to run the ball down Mike Zimmer's throat. He is going, because that's the thing. Passing on defenses in a passing league now, that's kind of whatever. Sometimes you're just going to get passed on. It's not good. But for a defensive-minded coach like Zimmer to get ran up the gut or just get ran up and down the field, that's a gut punch to a defensive-minded head coach. So he's going to want to come out and run the game, run the ball early in the game, try and set the tone with that. The Vikings need to stop it again, giving up 120 rushing yards a game. That's not where you want to be 20th in the NFL. And keep in mind, we talked about uh, talked about Barr being back. What the heck has gone on with him? Anthony Barr has been gone since the halfway through training camp, basically, and nothing has happened. Absolutely nothing has happened. Like, he, everybody's been saying, oh, yeah, he'll be fine by week one. Well, now he'll be fine by week two. Oh, yeah, week, week three. He's definitely going to play week three. And then he doesn't play, and we've heard nothing on Anthony Barr so far through the first part of the week. Now, granted, maybe when they start practicing, we'll get a better idea as the team goes to comment. Uh, based on my knowledge, the team hasn't said anything yet based on the recording of this podcast on Anthony Barr, but it's frustrating. He is a highly compensated player, one of the fixtures of your defense, Mike Zimmer's first ever draft pick. That means a lot to Zimmer, and he's not on the field. And when you're playing a team like Cleveland who has good running backs, you know what stops them? Good linebackers. Your, uh, your defensive line can only do so much in terms of plugging the holes and trying to take up bodies, but that's when the linebackers come in and finish the job. Kendricks, he's one of the best in the league. Uh, he's fine. Barr can make a lot of plays for you. He's better than Nick Vigil. He's better than Eric Wilson. He's there for a reason. He's being paid that much for a reason. So they need to figure out what they're going to do with Barr and if he's going to come back, because that's going to be huge. And another thing, Odell Beckham Jr. is back. I'm assuming that they're going to put Patrick Peterson on him. 
but it gives them another pass catching option. So the Browns are going to want to try and run the ball. And still, Odell Beckham, he's tall, he's lanky. I know he hasn't made as many flashy plays as people have wanted him to over the last couple of years, but he's still dangerous. And Patrick Peterson, as we talked about yesterday, has been a bit of a disappointment so far this season. So expect them to attack him and Bashad Breland. If I'm Kevin Stefanski, I am attacking Breland. Um, whether it's uh, whether it's Peoples-Jones or whether it's uh, some of their tight ends or whether it's just anybody outside of Beckham, because I think Beckham's going to get uh, have uh, Patrick Peterson on him. They're going to attack whoever that guy is as well. Um, and moving back to the pass rush, though, this is what's so important, is how the front seven plays. Because how well the front seven plays will impact how well the back part of the defense plays. If you can keep Baker Mayfield in the pocket, if you can put the game squarely on his shoulders, make him uncomfortable with that pass rush. I know it's a cliche, make him uncomfortable with the pass rush. But really, Baker Mayfield has the benefit of Kareem Hunt and and, uh, Nick Chubb. When you look at the two running backs, it's pretty easy for him to hand it up the middle, dump it off to the running backs, whatever. Make him have to throw the ball downfield, but you need to get the pass rush to be able to make him uncomfortable while he's doing that so he doesn't feel comfortable trying to let it loose. If he feels comfortable trying to let it loose, he's going to get some big plays against this defense, which means that just everything goes back to stopping the run. You need to make sure that your guys are plugging up lanes, and that is the thing that you got Dalvin Tomlinson and Michael Pierce back to do is to stuff up the middle, and again, that can only go so far you are got your front four guys plugging up the middle as it is to have the linebackers ready to come in and finish the job. And if you don't have a guy like Anthony Barr, that's going to be a tougher task, especially with how good of running backs that the Cleveland Browns have. The biggest thing for the Minnesota Vikings to win this game, they have to stop the run against Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb if they want to win this game at all. All right, let's move on to the Minnesota Twins here now. And... Let's talk about them for a little bit on our What About Wednesday here. What about their other American League Central rivals here? Well, let's break down the division, starting off with the Chicago White Sox. And I'm not looking at them so much as, you know, for next season. That's for another podcast. I'm looking at it so far as this season. And looking at just how the Twins should have played against them. And... I want to start with Detroit. Detroit, the Twins have played very well against, I believe. They've uh, only lost like three games to them throughout the entire season. The Twins have owned the Tigers, which is good because Detroit's going to be good. They're going to start to get better here. They're building something. The pieces are starting to get up there. So that's been something positive as your play against Detroit. Cleveland has been meh, and Kansas City as well, has been a bit lackluster. You would have expected to get more wins against the Royals. That used to be the team that the Twins would just beat up on time and time again. But uh, with Detroit, they're talented. They have some guys kind of – they're still a couple years away from competing. So when you look at that team, it's kind of – it should have been expected. And that's honestly the thing you should have said about all these teams outside of Chicago. It should be expected that you play Cleveland tough and you win more games than them. It should have been expected that you trounced Kansas City. Kansas City is a rebuilding team that refuses to rebuild. You should have crushed them. How are you in last place by multiple games to the Kansas City Royals? 
And when you that, that's just been the biggest part of the Twins. This division was up for grabs so much, and the Twins couldn't do anything against them. When you look at Detroit, they beat up on them. Good job. Cleveland, they were met. But you know what? Cleveland still is a good team. Uh, they're around 500. You expected them to probably be a little better. You couldn't really take care of business against them, and you couldn't take care of business at all against one of the worst teams in baseball, which you know what that makes you? One of the worst teams in baseball. And so that's been the frustrating part. But the most frustrating thing out of all this, the White Sox should have been, they should be knocking on the door of 100 wins. With, what do we have now, five games, six games left in the season? The best they can do is 96. They're at 90 wins right now. They just clinched the division last week. They should have clinched it like two weeks ago. This is ridiculous. The White Sox were not ready to take over this division. This division still should have been the Minnesota Twins. This division still should have been won by Minnesota. When you look at the White Sox, they're a good team. They have talent. They couldn't put it all together. Now, granted, they had some injuries. But still, the AL Central was bad. They beat up on bad teams, but not enough. Their record against winning teams is not good. How you let Chicago win this division without a competition at all is an indictment on the Minnesota Twins and an indictment on how bad that Derek Falvey and Thad Levine messed up the roster construction during the offseason. Now, I like Falvey and Levine. I think the Twins have a good shot to be competing again soon. So it's not to say that they need to be fired. But this one... They need to go to the poll ads or to Dave St. Peter, whoever, and say, this was on us. We messed up. That, I mean, we messed up. We made some calculations. Those calculations went bad. This division should still have been the Minnesota Twins for the taking. And it's just, I keep looking at this division and I keep saying, the Minnesota Twins should win this division. They should have won this division. They fell apart. They ruined their season early. But, man, just looking at the Chicago White Sox, just looking at how good everybody expected them to be, how good they looked at one point, and to see them only have 90 wins at this point in the year. When the Twins won the division in 2019, they had like 101 wins. And they had a, they had a bad division, too. The only difference was Cleveland was better. Cleveland made it a fight until the last three weeks of the season, the last two weeks of the season. Cleveland won over 90 games. Cleveland in 2019 would have won the AL Central, or at least been competing down to the final day. The White Sox are a paper tiger, and the Twins should have won three straight division titles, and they blew it. All right, now let's get into a bit of positive news here, because I don't want this to be all ragging on the Twins. Uh, credit where credit is due. Miguel Sano had a good season. I think he did. He had a slow start with the two home runs, only two home runs in the first two months. So I, he started out bad, and I was one of the ones to criticize him. If you go read uh, some of my old pieces over at Zone Coverage, uh, he did not play that well this season. I was one of the people saying it might be time just to admit that you can't fix him and he's just a fun he's just kind of a fun but flawed player and you have to kind of cut bait or at least start to hedge your bets on him and the twins kind of did that with taking away at bats in favor of Kirilov but then Kirilov got hurt Sano got all those at bats and then i said this is a good opportunity for Sano to bounce back 
He's going to have a lot of at-bats to log. Nobody's in, Nobody's threatening his job. He really has a good chance to bounce back. And he did for the most part. When you look at his season now, he has, according to baseball reference, he has 30 home runs, which is something I didn't think he would do based on the way he started. He has uh, a... He has a 778 OPS. And according to baseball reference, he has a war of 1.2, which is not great, but considering where he was at before, it's considering where he started, this is leagues better. It's obviously nowhere near the two and a half wins above replacement he generated through baseball reference in uh, 2019. But he still was able to bounce back from a terrible start and put together a productive thing, you know, and put together a productive season. Now, granted, it all happened too late where it didn't even matter and everything was just kind of, you know, it's just kind of a moot point. But I think what it does give the Twins is it does give them flexibility to at least go forward a little bit and say, we don't know what to do with Sano yet, but it's a good problem to have that we don't know what to do with Sano. We don't know what to do with Kirilov. We don't know what to do with the DH for next season. Is it a rotating door where you're putting in Sano and Donaldson, kind of tag-teaming the DH, and Kirilov plays first, but he'll also play the outfield, and that also gives time for Sano to play first, or you kind of just have, I think it's going to be this kind of musical chairs situation, and it creates a who's going to play first question, but it make no mistake, it, it probably, unless the Twins make a trade, they trade Donaldson and move Sano back to third base, or maybe they announce that Sano is going to be the full-time DH, or maybe they announce Donaldson's going to be the full-time DH and move Sano to third, whatever. But it's going to be musical chairs until the Twins kind of figure out what they need to do. And that's not a bad thing to do early on in the season if the Twins... Now, you'd like them to have a more solid plan, but the plan might just be, these are three good baseball players, we need to run them out here and if they all three can just give us what we need and help us win ball games, then it's not really going to matter that they don't have official roles. But Sano kind of has that Kirk Cousins effect to him, if you ever notice. I know Kirk Cousins is playing well this year, but keep in mind, and I've said it before on the podcast, that Miguel Sano is a player of peaks and valleys, just like Kirk Cousins. I've said before, Kirk Cousins is a player of peaks and valleys. The highs are really great, and you love it, and you want to buy the jerseys, and you want to, you know, talk, you know, you want the let it Sano's going and all that kind of stuff. But when he's at his low and he's striking out and he's not putting together competitive at-bats, swinging and missing at everything, unable to drive the ball, that's when you say we need to get rid of him. He's unplayable. We got to cut him. We got to trade him. We got to do whatever. And then you get to the highs. And I know some people say trade him while he's high. Teams aren't going to trade a lot for him. They know the peaks and valleys. I don't think it's very unlikely you're going to find a GM that'll be willing to take on Sano at this point in his career. But I think when you get to the peaks, you also say, there it is. That's Sano. He can play. And Sano has been a very divisive player in the fan base because there's a lot of people who are in the camp of he strikes out too much. He's a liability. He's inconsistent. He can't do it. But then there's the people that say, but look at the highs. And it's like that with Kirk Cousins. You have people that only look at the lows. You have people that only look at the highs. And then they just are divided. And it's the same way with Miguel Sano. He's good enough 
to where his highs make you say, all right, he's a good player. We're keeping him around. Nothing's changing. But his lows always just make you wonder how long he's going to be on the roster. All right, moving on to the Minnesota Timberwolves here. And I want to talk quick about Anthony Edwards. Can he take that big step for next season? And I think he can. But we need to lower our expectations for Anthony Edwards. Because he was, I mean, I know he should have been Rookie of the Year, but it wasn't a very strong rookie class. Anthony Edwards, if you look through up until the last about 15 games of the season, he was playing with a plus-minus of uh, about even and like negative .4, I think was the number that basketball reference used for him. Now in the final games of the season, he was playing very, very well. Uh, the final 15 games of the season here, if you look up the, uh, pulling up the stats here on basketball reference, I mean, just everything he was able to do was r incredible. The things that he was able to uh, get done with the Wolves in the final part of the season here as this, uh, as this page loads. But uh, when you look at the Timberwolves and you look at what they need to do, this season. Uh, they need Anthony Edwards to step up, but they needed just to be more in points. They needed to be in defense. They needed to be in chemistry. They needed to be in setting up on offense. Because keep in mind, Edwards, again, didn't play well until the last 15 games of the season. Before, he was just a flashy play guy. You wouldn't really notice him until he had the posterizing dunk. But then you'd watch the rest of the game and go, ooh, he took some bad shots, or ooh, he didn't look like he knew where he was going there. Because he's only 19 years old, and rarely do players step in and play really well at a rookie level in the NBA because they're teenagers playing against 27-year-old men in the peak of their careers. Ant isn't even to the peak of his career yet. He's nowhere near it, which is fun to see how he can grow under a full season of Chris Finch. Again, they were 9-7 and seven in the last 16 games of the season. And a big reason why is because of Anthony Edwards. I think he can take that next step, but we need to be tempered in how we view it. He's not going to be scoring 30 points a game. He's not going to be shooting the lights out. Those last 16 games, he was shooting about 48% from the field, 36 from behind the arc. Good. Those are good numbers. But can they last a full season? He's not going to be the guy on offense. You know, D'Angelo, Russell, Cat, they're the guys. Even though I've said before on the podcast, it needs to be Cat and Ant plus D'Lo. There's a reason why D'Lo is kind of on a, on a German sidecar with that one. But it's going to take time for it to grow into that. And you have, to give some, you have to give Ant some wiggle room. But I think Finch can unlock what he can do. And I'm excited to see what he can do. We just need to remember to temper our expectations here a little bit. And now with the Timberwolves, let's look at their what about uh, Wednesday here. Let's... Look, obviously divisions don't matter in the NBA, but let's take a look in the, in the Western Conference here. And outside of the usual suspects, you know Portland's going to be in the playoffs, you know the Lakers are, you know the Mavs are, you know the Clippers, Nuggets, Suns, Jazz, the Warriors. But let's look at some of the teams that they're going to be competing with because the Minnesota Timberwolves should realistically be competing based on the way their roster is currently constructed outside of a Ben Simmons trade. They should, at the very least, be competing for the 9 or 10 seed. If they don't make that play-in game, the, things need to change. 
they need to figure something out. They need to get something going. Uh, but looking at the Warriors, they'll probably be better. They're getting Klay Thompson back this year. So they're going to be better. How better? We don't know. But also looking, the San Antonio Spurs are not going to be as good. They've been waning. They need to get kind of a new infusion of talent. They probably need to tank and get a top pick and kind of leverage that into either getting a superstar or kind of restocking the farm a little bit. So they're a team that could fall off. The Memphis Grizzlies, they were only 38-34. and 34. Now, Jan Morant's only going to keep getting better. But they're a team that you could still realistically compete with. How Portland does, Portland's going to make the playoffs. But how they do with Chauncey Billups as head coach is going to be interesting. How Dallas does with a new head coach is going to be interesting. Um, because, I mean, when you just look at this, who did uh, who did Dallas hire? They hired Jason Kidd. So though, I think he, they hired him as the head coach. So that's another one where you have to watch and see uh, how that transition's going. Luca and uh, Porzingis has been a tense relationship that reports have said. So Dallas is just always inconsistent. Um, but you look at the teams that they would be competing with from the outside into the playoffs. The Pelicans, you're better than the Pelicans. The Kings, you're better than the Kings. You're way better than the Thunder or the Rockets. So outside of the teams that Western Conference teams that didn't make the playoffs last year, the Wolves are the best on paper. And they should be able to get into that play-in game at the very least. All right, let's take a look here at uh, our Wild now, the Minnesota Wild here. And keep in mind, the Wild now, when we look at our What About Wednesday, the Wild are in the Central again. They're in the Central Division, which is good because you get some of the rivalries back. They didn't get to play the Blackhawks at all last season. They didn't get to play the Stars. Uh, they didn't get to play some of these other teams. So it's going to be fun to see them back in that division. Um, when you look at the Central, they're going to be playing, um, if my uh, thing will load here, uh, the Coyotes, uh, they played last season. They played the Avs, all that kind of stuff. But they're going to play the Blackhawks again. They're going to play the Stars again. They're going to play the Preds. They're going to play the Blues, Winnipeg, all these different teams that are good. The Stars, good. Blackhawks, who knows? They have Flurry, so who knows how good they'll be. But Avalanche, good. Stars, good. Blues, good. Jets, good. Preds, eh. They're kind of in that rebuilding thing. But when you look at that, they, they have a tough division. I mean, Colorado is going to be competing for the top spot. They'll probably win the division. Dallas is going to be coming in behind them. And then you have uh, Chicago and St. Louis as well and Winnipeg. It's not going to be a cakewalk like it was last season. You're not going to beat up on the Coyotes. You're not going to beat up on the Ducks. You're not going to beat up on the Kings and the Sharks. You're going to have to – and granted, they played Vegas a lot too and Colorado, and they played really well against Vegas. But you are going to have to play against your normal division again. So that is going to be something that when you look at some of these other teams that they're playing against, they need to they need to keep that in mind. And I think Wild fans need to keep that in mind as well with the season is you have to temper expectations a little bit with this division. I know they made the playoffs last season, and I know that they have excitement. Kaprizov under contract. You have Boldy. You have uh, Marco Rossi coming up as well. You have some things to be excited about. But it's going to be a tough division. It's going to be tough sledding if you want to try and squeak in to the playoffs again this season and try and kind of keep that momentum going 
that you built last year. Looking at uh, other things with the Wild here, uh, they made their first round of cuts a couple days ago. Um, you know, mostly uh, cutting some prominent junior players, letting them go back to Canada. Um, they cut Caden Banneker, uh, Damon Hunt, Carson Lambos, Kyle Masters, Pale Novak, and Ryan O'Rourke. Uh, none of those were really shocking. Um, it was just kind of, uh, it was just expected. There's still a significant number of cuts left, but and there are some jobs to be won uh, with the Wild roster right now. They have their game against the Colorado Avalanche tomorrow. Um, expect more cuts after that game, but the, the roster is starting to take shape a little bit here. And one last thing I want to talk about with the Wild is the cap heck that they are in. And when you look at the contracts of Minnesota, it's – and looking at the team, there was an article done by the thehockeywriters.com. Uh, and they ranked all the contracts, and great contracts. They have Kaprizov. They have Eric Sinek at eight years, $42 million. Such a good contract for Eck. Uh, Felino, three years, $9.3 million. Uh, Ryan Hartman, three years, just over $5 million. Brodeen, seven years, $42. Dumba, two years at twelve. Talbot, two years at seven uh, and a third million dollars. They have the all right contracts with Spurgeon. Jordan Greenway on a one-year deal, Fiala on a one-year deal. And again, a lot of these are guys on one-year deals like uh, Goligoski uh, and stuff like that. But also bad contracts are Zuccarillo and Rask. Uh, and Rask mainly just because uh, he's just been a disappointment as a player. Zuccarillo is the fact that he's 34 years old. So the Wilds have a good amount of good contracts on this team. To my knowledge, this is not a Minnesota Wild friendly site, or like it's not a fan site or one dedicated to the Minnesota Wild. This is just a general NHL site. They have some pretty good praise for how Gurren and Evson have kind of gone about the roster construction here. And the thing is, is they have to be smart. They have to have good contracts because as everybody knows who covers the Wild and just everybody in the hockey world knows, there's still three more years of cap heck right now. Parisi and Suter both have uh, over... A, you know, anywhere from six point three to seven point three million dollars over the next three years each. So that's what about fourteen million each year in dead money. You are just paying for Suter and Parisi to play against you, and Suter is relishing in that opportunity, obviously going to Dallas. But the Wild are going to be stuck in cap hack, which is why it makes me a little bit pessimistic little bit hedgy on how this team can do immediately because they're not going to be it's hard to get a guy like Eichel I know that they can make it work but it doesn't look like Eichel's going anywhere I know that they they can probably push some things around and create some room somehow but they're still stuck you can't just avoid a 14 million dollar cap hit over the next three seasons and you would just hope by that time that your prospects have come up and they're all super good in terms of Boldy and in terms of uh, your other prospects here. But if, and the hope is that they're good and you just build on that and you are in a position to where you just kind of sign the icing on the cake players when they're good. But right now they're kind of just scraping through with one and two year contracts on veteran defensive guys, which is an old defense. They're an aging team. They are. And that's going to be one thing to watch with the Wild this season, how well they do.
All right, well, that'll wrap things up here for today on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. We'll be back again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.